I'm here reading a sermon, delivering a sermon prepared by Phyllis, but in my voice. I've called this sermon, she writes, to bless and be blessed. But let's start at the beginning. What do these words actually mean to us? Broadly, they mean those parts of our lives that bring us success or joy or pleasure or love. A sunset, a quick mind, a strong immune system, people who love us, fulfilling jobs. We may feel that God or life or the universe has blessed us. While we may have worked hard for our good fortune, some element of grace, luck, and timing was also at work, along with the assistance of those who loved, guided, and protected us over the years. As parents, we give our children our blessing by committing to keep them safe and to support them in finding their way in life. African-American lawyer and author Lawrence Otis Graham blessed his children early on. Graham's story about the harassment his son experienced appeared in the Washington Post this week, and I'm sure that some of you read it. He wrote that he grew up in the 1960s and 70s. He has vivid memories of the prejudice he faced in those years. He grew up believing that he might protect his children from that if he was able to offer them a privileged lifestyle. Graham graduated from Ivy League schools. He and his wife had high-level jobs in law and banking. They were committed to their children. In religious language, they blessed them. In the hope of protecting them from prejudice, they sent their children away to private schools made sure they spoke impeccable traditional English, insisted they dress conservatively, no pants in danger of falling down, no hoodies, no dark glasses. Yet their love, their position, their blessing was not enough. One afternoon when their 15-year-old boy was walking across campus at his school, two men pulled up beside him in a car Thinking they probably needed directions, he began to walk toward them. You the only nigger at this school? He wasn't sure he heard them right. He walked a little closer. The man repeated the words more distinctly, and they drove away laughing. It was the first time the boy had heard the N-word. His father writes... His father had been called that when he was just seven. More frightening, the police had picked his father up when he was six or seven, when he was six or so with his nine-year-old brother. They were riding in the older brother's new red radio wagon. The police piled them in a police car, and only the intervention of his mother saved them from worse Graham and his wife were able to postpone their son's encounter with the N-word until his boy was a teenager. Still, the impact was devastating. The boy became afraid. In the weeks that followed, he avoided going to the library alone. He was leery of cars slowing down, avoided crosswalks. He worried that if he or his parents stood up against such hostility, the other kids would think he was a radical, different, 
not just one of them. Maybe they would wonder if he had done something to provoke the incident. Maybe he should just laugh it off. To bless and be blessed. Clearly Lawrence Graham and his son have had troubles, troubles that many whites have never experienced and have difficulty often crediting. Yet even with the insidious racism that appears without warning, I think most of us would assume that Lawrence and his family are still in many ways blessed. They love one another, are committed to one another, have nice things, opportunities. Of course, it's not up to privileged whites like me to say that the Graham family is blessed. We do not walk in their shoes, live in their house, go to that boarding school. We cannot come close to understanding what it's like to be them. They may face all kinds of limitations and tragedy that don't appear in this article. Still, they seem to have a life that many in this world would envy. Let us hope that Lawrence Graham and his wife feel blessed at the end of most days. They've worked hard for their present position in life, yet they were supported by the gifts of the universe and of the generations before theirs that allowed them to achieve at this level. They, in turn, have blessed their family. They did everything they could to provide their children with a good education, the good things of life, good neighborhoods, clear guidelines that would keep them safe, guidelines most white parents wouldn't think were necessary. It is important to have this glimpse Graham gives us into the lives of an affluent black family as we reflect on the tragic story of Michael Brown in Ferguson, a suburb of St. Louis. For if even affluent, educated blacks encounter prejudice, harassment, and limited opportunities, if they even encounter prejudice, harassment and limited opportunities are far more prevalent for the vast majority of African Americans. Blessings are far harder to come by for more ordinary folk. The media so far have given us only glimpses into Michael Brown's upbringing. A New York Times story tells us that he came from a modest background and lived in a neighborhood with what they call rough patches. His parents were divorced. He graduated from high school and was planning to study heating and cooling technology in a vocational college. But despite their divorce, it seems clear that Michael had two parents that loved him as well as other relatives who blessed him with the best they could. His parents now grieve for him and fight for justice. According to the Times, Michael's uncle cared about him too and tried to keep him out of trouble. He offered advice similar to Lawrence Graham's advice to his son. If you're ever stopped by the police, the uncle said, give it up. If you make one wrong move, they'll shoot you. They'll kill you. It's important to realize that almost all African Americans live with their own personal experiences of discrimination. Like Lawrence Graham, they've had police officers confront them or family members for no reason, even if they dress and talk nicely, have no criminal record. 
even if they're only six years old. These experiences leave them angry, frustrated, afraid. They do not trust a justice system that often targets them for the crime of simply driving while black. You are probably familiar with the way our nation's enforcement of its drug laws fills its prisons with far, 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 far more African Americans than white drug users in proportion to their percentage of the population. It's within that context of personal experience of discrimination that many African Americans hear the story of Michael Brown. It's important for those of us without this experience to try to imagine what it's like for African Americans when white folk hurl the N-word at them. To try to imagine our parents having to caution us about how to act or avoid or counter racist hostility. Try to imagine that even a routine traffic stop is always loaded with danger. To imagine that even driving completely within the traffic laws in a white neighborhood may subject us to harassment. I have spent the last few days, Phyllis writes, reading about Michael Brown's death, the police investigation, the protests, and how the police responded to the protests. I'm a former lawyer. I have not seen all the evidence. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. But I'm troubled by what I do see, both in accounts of the witnesses and in the accounts I hear about how the police in the St. Louis area have treated African-Americans historically. I'm troubled that such a minor offense as walking in the middle of the street was handled in such a way as to leave a young man dead on the ground riddled with bullet holes. I'm troubled by the police response after the shooting, and I worry about what will happen when the grand jury reports, as it will any day now. But I don't know what happened. I don't know how Michael Brown reacted to Officer Wilson, what he did or did not do. I don't know whether more training or a better screening of applicants for the police force in Ferguson would have made a difference. I do think a police force with a racial composition much closer to the city's population and recruited locally would have responded with more sensitivity and earned more trust than Ferguson's overwhelmingly white police force in this overwhelmingly black community. I say this even though I have at least some idea of how difficult it is for police, for people in authority, whoever they are, to respond in very delicate situations like this. I don't have the answers. But I do want to talk about blessing and being blessed, Phyllis continues. I believe that every one of us in this room this morning has been blessed. Some of us may have more damaged childhoods or even adulthoods than others. Some of us may know the pain of prejudice. There are many other troubles that even the most privileged of us may have encountered in our lifetimes. I cannot speak for you. I can only imagine for you that despite everything you have, despite everything, you have had love in your lives, you have felt joy. We have been blessed, but how, many, how may we in turn choose to bless the world? Specifically, in light of Ferguson, 
How may we reach out to those who, though perhaps blessed themselves, have experienced the pain and the fear and the anger of racism? We meet in this church, built by freed slaves over a hundred years ago. After their own long days of work, they worked on this sanctuary. You see these walls, these strips of wood on the bottom are the actual work of their hands. It's beautiful work. They may even, some speculate, have cut the trees themselves and had them milled locally. They installed these plain glass windows. The floor we walk on, they built. They were tired and probably very poor, but they made this place a holy place. They made this floor holy ground. Here they could find comfort and community. In a hostile world, this was a place where they could hear of a God of love and find respect, comfort, and inspiration. Little could they have known that in 2014, Lawrence Graham, an African-American, could have graduated from Princeton University and Harvard Law School, become a published author, have gotten a high-level job as a lawyer, Little could they have known that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would lead a nonviolent movement that would inspire our government to enact voting rights laws and much of our population, enough of it at least, to support them. How could they have known that in 2014 an African American would occupy the White House? Yet they built this place of beauty and inspiration, not knowing what the future would bring. We who worship here are now are blessed by the labor of their hands. I feel their presence calling me to continue the struggle for justice. I feel a holy obligation to bless their great-grandchildren who still struggle for equality, who still struggle for justice in this land which, for all its progress, still suffers the blight of racism. I feel the call to bless them not just by marching once a year in the Martin Luther King Day Parade, but by standing with them, following their lead, and building a world where people are judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Choose to bless the world. How are we called to bless the great-grandchildren of those who built this chapel? We have taken poverty as our signature concern. We have become sponsors of All Ages Read Together. While that's not specifically aimed at African Americans, it serves many of them still seeking economic justice. My hope, Phyllis writes, is that more will develop out of that initiative as the years go by. My hope is that this congregation will find more ways to support local initiatives to provide economic and educational opportunity especially those who still start life with the multiple handicaps left by centuries of racism in our country. But today, I call on you to consider what the events in Ferguson ask of us. Member Robin Gerhardt has agreed to attend the NAACP meeting tomorrow night between to, to hear for herself what the situation is in Leesburg between police and people of color and to offer to partner with them 
and future actions that would benefit from an interfaith presence. Phyllis and I will be at a minister's conference up in Berkeley Springs, but Robin has agreed to go, and we hope that some others of you may wish to join her. If you'd like more information about it, see me or contact Phyllis or me uh, today, and we will give you the information, or contact Robin. I don't see Robin here today, but perhaps she'll be here at the second service. We are a small congregation, but a congregation with a big heart. And we are known for showing up. Rebecca Parker reminds us that none of us alone can save the world. But together, that is another possibility waiting. Together we are called to bless the world, to stand and walk and speak on the side of love and justice. The builders of this building could not have known what impact it would have on all those who would worship here in the years that followed their lives. We cannot know what impact our witness will have on the world that others will inherit. But as we have been blessed, so let us bless. Love is the spirit of this church. Let us help our neighbor. Let us bless our neighbor. And may we continue to be blessed.